Welcome to Line of Sight. My name is Don Heider. I'm the Executive Director of the Markle Center for Applied Ethics at Santa Clara University. And I'm Thane Kreiner, Executive Director of Miller Center for Social Entrepreneurship. Today we have Sarah Carpenter as our special guest. Sarah specializes in promoting human rights and global supply chains. She actually supported the International Labor Organization in reforming working conditions in Bangladesh following the 2013 Rana Plaza collapse, which many people heard about as a first sort of window into problems and supply chains for apparel. She joined after that Ascent Compliance uh, and heads the human trafficking and slavery uh, solution there. And she's a pioneering force behind the Social Responsibility Alliance's slavery and trafficking reporting template. She provides direction to Fortune 500 companies on human rights uh, due diligence, and she's built the Corporate Social Responsibility Initiative at Ascent, leading them in aligning its strategies and actions with the United Nations Global Compact principles. We're delighted to have you with us today, Sarah. And I guess one of the things that we'd like to start with asking you about, especially for um, uh, all of our audience members who are students, is how you went from having a bachelor's in science in physiology uh, to working in business and human rights, particularly in this very um, important area of supply chain transparency and responsibility? Hmm. That's a really good question. Thanks. Thanks for that. Um, and thank you for the introduction. So certainly my own path towards business and human rights, it hasn't been a direct one as my bachelor's um, of science and physiology would suggest. Um, what uh, I guess when I, I was first making a choice, uh, you know, as an undergraduate student about my focus of study, I kind of had medicine in mind. And I think there were a number of, um, of reasons um, for why I chose medicine. One of them was it felt like a very certain destinations. So there wasn't a whole lot of ambiguity in terms of, you know, where my career would be taking me. I certainly knew I wanted to help people and it felt like a fairly safe choice. Um, but what, what happened to me over the course of my undergrad studies is I, it was a slow but gradual realization that that's not really where my, my passion um, uh, lied. And in fact, I'll never forget when I took a women's studies course uh, as part of a summer course that I took um, when I was studying in Montreal. And it was the first course that I had ever taken where I would think about the subject matter at side of the classroom. And that for me was a pretty stark, you know, realization that maybe the physiology focus of my um, studies wasn't really where my real passions um, and interests lie. And so when I finished my undergrad studies and made the, the difficult but important decision of, of not pursuing medicine any further, I did a bit of, you know, searching and, and you know, considered where, you know, if, if it wasn't medicine, then, then what? And I kind of came back to this experience that I was um, fortunate to have when I was actually in high school, uh, where I participated in what was called an exposure visit or program to the Dominican Republic. And as part of that program, um, I visited the sugarcane plantations and saw the exploitation um, among the sugarcane workers. Many of them were very poor uh, migrant workers from Haiti working in Dominican Republic. And I felt, you know, even as, as a young student, sort of a real sense of injustice, but as well as complicity, because I understood that the sugar that they were harvesting in the Dominican Republic was then being exported to countries like Canada, which is, you know, where I was living. And so that's kind of what ended up pointing me in the direction of sort of more, you know, human rights oriented work 
work on the intersection between business and human rights, which is what eventually led me to my master's in public policy and then through kind of an incredible amount of persistence because at that time it was very difficult for Canadians to enter the international space. Um, I uh, moved to Bangladesh first for a volunteer position because that's what kind of all my advisors had um, uh, recommended that I do is just kind of get myself there, get on the ground and then sort of get to see where, where the interesting work is taking place. And then that's when I, I found my position with the International Labour Organization um, to support the, the response to Rana Plaza. So it was very kind of fortuitous because I kind of accidentally ended up at ground zero of the business and human rights movement. But it was a really kind of nice but indirect path um, that led me from science to what I'm what I'm now doing at uh, with Ascent Compliance. Interesting. So you talked about you know the transformative experience in the Dom- Dominican Republic and how that shaped your vocational journey. And I think that's true for a, for a lot of people that there's something they they can go back to and remember um, a specific event or instance um, or experience that that changed the trajectory of, of what they thought they might do with their with their talents. Um, and, and that's kind of on an individual level. But when you when you think about the Rana Plaza uh, collapse in 2013, uh, as you said, that was kind of ground zero for for human rights. I remember seeing the pictures on the front page of the, the New York Times and everyone said, you know, we've, we, we're getting all our clothing from places like Bangladesh and, and people are dying because the buildings aren't safe. So that was kind of a collective transformative event. Can you say more about how? that collapse of that building in Bangladesh really changed the way that we think about supply chains? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I will say the Rana Plaza collapse, it's interesting for a number of reasons. One of them is it wasn't an isolated um, incident. It didn't come on um, a backdrop of a sector where there hadn't been a history of um, issues when it comes to workplace violence and uh, health, workplace safety and health, for instance. So in fact, if you kind of look at the literature, there had been a number of other building collapses, none at the scale of Rana Plaza, as well as factories, for instance, within um, garment factories in, in Bangladesh or elsewhere um, that led to you know significant loss of life. And so, you know, the, the sector was certainly aware of, 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 of the issues. Um, I mean, what makes Bangladesh kind of unique from a structural safety perspective is because it's such a dense country, the buildings are built upwards as opposed to, you know, some other jurisdictions. So it really was at heightened risk for a collapse like, like the collapse of Rana Plaza. But when you have the loss of life that resulted from the collapse of Rana Plaza with, you know, over 1,100 workers dying as well, if you kind of do a little bit of um, a a look at sort of the um, uh, how um, a brand's compliance program um, had been applied and sort of where where they were going wrong um, uh, in, in not being able to prevent a tragedy of that scale. It was certainly a watershed moment for the apparel sector within Bangladesh. I mean, you know, kind of if you think about the, the core changes that I think, you know, really do need to be made, and I think businesses would agree to this, is, you know, active enforcement of labor laws, for instance, by governments. Um, uh, you know, those are often kind of the root causes, maybe a 
weak, a weak legal framework or, or weak enforcement of those laws. And certainly when I was, you know, living in Bangladesh after the collapse of Rana Plaza, that was kind of the transformation that was starting to take place is sort of equipping the Bangladesh Labor Inspectorate to undertake, you know, inspections of factories. Um, there was, of course, a, a large initiative that was also launched um, whereby, you know, different factories around the, the country were being inspected for structural um, safety issues as well as fire safety, etc. Because historically, if you think about audits, which were a key tool that the apparel sector was using, they um, weren't, in fact, assessing for structural safety issues. Um, so anyway, so Ronan Plaza certainly was, was a watershed moment. I think, I mean, uh, you know, when I, I speak to um, people who don't work in the business and human rights space, they'll often point to that being kind of a real pivotal moment for them where it was brought to their awareness. They likely had some, you know, understanding, of course, that these violations were occurring in supply chains, but that was one that made headlines worldwide and really couldn't be ignored. Can you talk a little bit about um, your work with the International Labor Organization there? And, you know, uh, change like that doesn't come easy. You talked a little bit about working on the inspection part of it, trying to help the, their inspection, strengthen their inspection. But but all, there had to have been uh, sort of a, some kind of sea change even higher up in the government. And, and so how, how was... How has that change affected? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, what one of the powerful moments that comes to mind for me is when um, it was uh, the CEO of H&M, so one of the largest apparel companies in the globe, um, had a meeting with the Prime Minister of Bangladesh and used that as a forum whereby, you know, the you know H&M was advocating for um, increased enforcement of, of the labor laws uh, within Bangladesh. So, again, the, what I heard often when I was living in Dhaka is, you know, Bangladesh, it's it's a country that in many respects, I mean, the, the garment sector is a, a pillar of their economy. Um, they were um, using or and continue to use the garment sector as a means to really kickstart their economy. And they're very aware of competition from lower cost regions. So if you look at the history of the apparel sector, um, manufacturing, you know, you know, once, of course, took place in, in uh, South America, it kind of moved towards Asia. And now, in fact, it, it's moving to Africa. So Ethiopia, for instance, is kind of a common um, destination now for, uh, uh, you know, apparel manufacturing. And so Bangladesh is, you know, you know, uh, the government at the time was really trying to strike a balance between keeping Bangladesh as a um, viable uh, manufacturing destination for brands, understanding that cost is one of the means in which they were keeping their sector competitive relative to other regions worldwide, but also understanding that, um, you know, Rana Plaza, for instance, many brands um, stopped manufacturing um, in Bangladesh. That, that was how some of them chose to respond. Other chose to stay, but stay very engaged with the government and the reform that was taking place and use that as a means to drive change. So, you know, it's, it's clear, of course, that, you know, brands needed to see changes or else, you know, it, it doesn't matter how inexpensive Bangladesh was as a sourcing destination if, if workers were losing their lives and it, it, it was no longer a viable sourcing um, uh, 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 sec- um, uh, jurisdiction for them. So it sounds like the economic clout was really uh, essential and the companies really taking a more active role. 
Yes, yes. And I mean, if I kind of reflect on my time in Bangladesh and one of my, my key takeaways, it really um, is the power of, of brands, of these large brands to enact change. So um, in my role with the International Labour Organization, I um, visited a number of factories on the ground. Um, many of the factories that I visited, they held direct relationships with um, international brands. So they were, sort, uh, they were producing for the export market. And of course, I saw you know, what the conditions were within those factories. And I also visited factories that didn't hold those relationships with international brands, so they weren't subject to their compliance programs. And instead, they were producing garments for the domestic or regional market. And those factories, the ones that were producing for the domestic market, were the ones where child labor was rampant. Um, there were you know, really no considerations for occupational safety and health. I'll never forget visiting an embroidery factory and sort of the noise that the workers were um, uh, exposed to day in and day out. It was deafening. And they were using absolutely no protective equipment to save themselves from significant hearing loss. And so it shows you how you know, there are these two almost now streams occurring within Bangladesh, within the same country, so two types of factories subject to the same laws, but one of them, um, as a result of its relationships with international brands, has had to change its labor practices because of the requirements of its clients, as opposed to the other, which didn't have those same drivers, and so continue to use child labor, um, you know, human rights abuses, etc. Yeah. So, Sarah, you talked um, quite a bit using the Rana Plaza example about workplace safety. And, and occupational hazards and things like that. And you, you touched a little bit on child labor, but one of the things that you've been doing at Ascent Compliance is, is driving this um, slavery and trafficking risk reporting template, or STRT. Can you tell us more about how Ascent arrived at the idea of, of launching that, what it is, and, and how does the tool actually work to, to reduce or, or at least highlight who is doing the work? Not only you know, are the conditions safe, but are, 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 do we have people who, who have been trafficked or, or who are modern-day human slaves, which there are, I, I've seen ranges anywhere from like 23 million to 40 million modern-day human slaves working in factories so that you know, we can wear our fast fashion or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe to answer that question, I'll first kind of take a step back to look at the broader picture. And I mean, you just mentioned um, some powerful statistics, and there's another one that I'd like to add to the table, um, which kind of blew my socks off. And I've I've worked in this space for a number of years, and I've seen the statistics. But ten, it, you know, according so there are estimates that ten thousand people need to be removed daily from the victim population of modern slaves in order to eradicate modern slavery by twenty. 30. So 10,000 victims need to be removed from the victim population every day for us to eradicate modern slavery by, you know, uh, 2030. So that just speaks to the incredible, the prevalence of, of this um, uh, human rights abuse. Modern slavery, it's a highly profitable enterprise. And if, you know, you take a step back and you consider the primary or the kind of standard um, responders to a violation of that type, of course, we think of police. Police. Maybe we think of activists and NGOs providing support to the victims. We don't often think of the private sector. 
And as a result of the scale of this abuse, governments worldwide are, have regulated the space. So they've now, as a result of new laws and regulations, have made it a real risk for business to not take steps to ensure that their supply chains are free of modern slavery. And so when I first joined Ascent Compliance, it was a really interesting time because those new laws and regulations, a few pivotal ones had been passed in, in the year prior to uh, me joining. So when I joined they were just starting to become enforced. Sorry to interrupt, Sarah. So, so are those laws, are, the, are those um, U.S. laws or are they international laws? And what kind of harmonization did you see between developed economies in the U.S., Europe, China, um, Japan, for example? Yeah, that's a great question. So California... Um, uh, really led the way um, uh, when it uh, comes to making it a real, you know, risk for business through, you know, the passing of a law um, to eradicate modern slavery from supply chains. So it started with a state law, but then it, it became a um, national law within the U.S. as it relates to federal procurement. So they set requirements for any companies who are selling goods or services to the federal government, and the federal government, the U.S. federal government, has enormous purchasing powers. So that, that is a very powerful tool to drive change. Um, the UK then around the same time that that anti-human trafficking provision was added, you know, as, uh, as a requirement to businesses doing business with the US government, the UK um, passed what, you know, was called the UK Modern Slavery Act. And since then, a number of other jurisdictions have followed suit. In fact, there have been agreements um, at the level of, I believe it was the G7 among a number of their labor ministers where they've made shared commitments around regulating these activities. So Australia has now passed their own law. Um, Canada is considering passing its own. The U.S. has another actually really important law in the books that was um, it, it had a, a loophole so it wasn't uh, as, as uh, it, it wasn't um, being uh, enforced um, but the loophole was closed under Obama and it's it's a law that, that actually um, uh, uh, prohibits companies from importing goods into the U.S. if they were made wholly or in part with forced labor. So the U.S. is unique in having that type of law on the book. Um, it will um, likely make its way to all of North America once the new NAFTA gets you know, passed and enters into force. But right now, it's just the U.S. So it's interesting. It's more the developed economies who are taking steps to ensure that the you know, multinational companies or you know, companies in general operating within their jurisdictions are doing adequate due diligence on their supply chain to ensure that their goods aren't being made with forced labor. So tell us a little bit about how the diligence works in, in this tool that, that you've been pioneering, the S STRT, uh, for ensuring that there isn't forced labor, there aren't slaves in the supply chain, and, and how do we actually know that? I mean, you, you mentioned, and it's really interesting when I heard you say it, like modern-day slavery is really profitable, but we know that slavery in the United States was very profitable also, um, not just for the South, but also for, for the North. And, and it's one of, the, one of the reasons that we had the Civil War was, was an economic one at, at the end of the day. Um, and, and still, we have, you know, your statistic, 10,000 people 
a day have to be removed from modern slavery for the next decade to eliminate it. And that's a lot. Like, that's a, a good-sized university that of, of disappearing every day in terms of population. So how do we actually know that there aren't slaves in the supply chain? How, what, how, yeah. what kind of visibility can these tools provide and, and give not just the companies for legal compliance, but also consumers for moral and ethical compliance, let's say, um, uh, confidence that, that the goods they're, they're purchasing don't involve slaves. Yeah. So the, the language that's used is, is due diligence, and it's um, supported by international frameworks that exist at the level of the OECD as well as the United Nations. And what due diligence really is, is of course it strives for the elimination of, of an abuse, but it does that through identifying risk addressing um, that risk and sort of reporting on your steps to, to do that. So when we talk about, you know, the steps that businesses are taking, what they're doing really is a, a risk assessment, risk um, prevention, risk mitigation process. Um, and that that's what the um, a tool that you reference, the Slavery and Trafficking Risk Template, enables. So it gives companies visibility into the characteristics of the their supplier's workforce. So for instance, when it comes to modern slavery, we, we know that migrant workers are at heightened risk for abuse um, simply because in, in many instances they, they might have paid exorbitant recruitment fees in order to um, gain a job and uh, as a result are in a situation of indebtedness and that that can um, you know result in an instance of modern slavery. So a tool like the SDRT gives companies a line of sight into the risks within their suppliers' facilities based on where their suppliers are located, their industry and known risks associated with that the characteristics of the supplier's workforce, and then how the supplier then is controlling for that risk through management systems. So whether they you know, have policies in place that prohibit the charging of recruitment freeze, whether they understand how their workforce is vulnerable to these issues, whether they're training their employees about modern slavery, it exists, these are the signs, et cetera, et cetera. And that then allows companies to have you know, a line of sight in terms of which of their suppliers are at greatest risk for slavery and human trafficking and how can they then work with those suppliers to address that risk so that workers are adequately protected. So given the, the economic incentives of, of modern-day slavery and you know, indentured servitude being part of that, overall, do you see a, a, a decline in slavery or, or an increase? And, and you know, what, what direction are we headed towards the 2030 goal um, and, and this might be a good time to just share um, for our listeners, what is the UN Global Compact and, and how does that tie into this? Sure. So in terms of kind of decline or, or increase, it, it sort of depends on, on whether you're, you're maybe a glass half full or glass half empty person. I mean, if you look at the um, uh, total number of victims today relative to what it's ever been, it's never been higher. But if you look at it as a proportion of the world population, it's it's lower than it, what it once was. So there's more there's more yeah. slaves, but there's more people. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but proportionally, um, there's fewer slaves. But, but really, we're, yeah. we're we want slave-free goods yeah. and services. So, yeah, okay. Exactly. 
So, I mean, I, I wouldn't be doing the work that I'm, I'm doing if I wasn't an optimist at heart. And I certainly believe that the direction of travel, it, it is in the right direction. I think um, it's still a fairly new space for many businesses. Of course, those who are consumer facing have been tackling these issues for many, many years because they've had substantive market pressures that without a law, they didn't need to you know, take action to consider you know, any abuses in their supply chain. But if you look at the private sector writ large, I think the new laws and regulations have really been instrumental in, um, uh, in, in driving change. And so I would say for sure, you know, the direction of travel is, is, is in the right direction. Um, I do think, um, you know, just again, based on the statistics that we do have a long way to go, but I think we are certainly making progress. And can you comment on um, the role of technology in providing transparency into supply chain, both for, for companies who want to uh, abide by uh, appropriate laws, but also for consumers. I, I, I think some of the, the market pressures you were talking about uh, that preceded the laws were um, fairly um, obvious for things like conflict diamonds, for example, is, is an example a lot of us can think about. And it's uh, the supply chain isn't terribly complex, but we, we, we had some guests on the podcast talking about cobalt in our phones and iPads and computers, and it's a little bit harder to trace that all the way back. So are blockchain and other technologies going to make it easier for consumers to know the provenance of all the different components of all their products? Yes. Um, and I, I think technology is a key pillar of the solution here. And it's not always as um, uh, revolutionary, let's say, as some of these really new innovative practices. But what technology also allows is for an automation of some of the practices and procedures that companies are already doing today. So in that way, it makes it more accessible for the broader private sector um, space because it brings costs down. It means the cost of implementing the due diligence program across large and complex supply chains. Um, is is you know more affordable and, and therefore accessible for for most business. It, interesting that you mentioned kind of conflict diamonds um, and, and cobalt as well. I mean, conflict minerals is is another important sort of area that has benefited enormously from transparency. So by conflict minerals, I, I mean the three TGs. So that includes gold um, and other minerals. And you know, again, in those cases, it's 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 it, it, kind of the response. It's not a revolutionary one. It's it's you know. It's asking the right questions to suppliers, understanding where materials are being sourced, um, being smart about training, being smart about applying pressure, being smart about teaming up within other, uh, with other companies. And I think that has really proven to be very effective in, in driving change. On the consumer side, I mean, I'm certainly a consumer who cares deeply about you know, the um, ethical impact of any of the goods that I purchase. And I've um, been very grateful to see you know, the, the new apps, for instance, that are now freely available that make it quite easy for myself as a consumer to, you know, quickly um, get a snapshot, you know, without having to do a whole lot of upfront research research on my, my own part. It's it's sort of ready-made sort of evaluation by some credible third party on, um, uh, you know, a brand's practice as it, as it relates to ethical sourcing. So um, it is an exciting, um, you know, technology, of course, is doing really exciting things to make due diligence, you know, very accessible for businesses and to make it, you know, I, as easy as possible for consumers to um, uh, spend according to their, their values. I imagine, though, that no matter how good the technology gets, um, it's going to be hard to replace feet on the ground in terms of assessing what's going on in some of these places. Yeah. 
I mean, certainly what, you know, how I've seen our own clients use um, our platform here at Ascent Compliance is our, our platform has allowed them to be much more strategic with how they, who they um, visit and, and have those boots on the ground um, visits with. So it's, it's, you know, rarely is it a replacement and more as a means for companies to be much smarter with how they um, target their, um, uh, you know, efforts um, to, to visit their suppliers in person. I mean, I will say boots on the ground. It's not a panacea. Um, there are well-known human rights violations, like modern slavery is one of them, um, rights around collective bar- bargaining, freedom of association, where a boots on the ground approach actually often isn't the, the right one, simply because in the case of modern slavery, by its very nature, it's often a hidden crime. And so unless someone who's actually visiting the factory really is equipped and skilled at uncovering an abuse of that type, it can very easily go um, uh, be missed. So uh, kind of to continue along that train of thought, um, a new kind of practice that I'm seeing leading companies uh, roll out in their supply chain is kind of a worker voice solution where they're starting to um, have more direct access to you know the views um, of workers in their supply chain and and that has proven and shown to be you know a, a fairly effective way at uncovering things like you know um, issues around collective bargaining or freedom of association but a, a clear kind of sight line in, in into the the real experiences of the workers. And so is that something that is to some extent technology enabled too with mobile devices in the hands of of most people that they can can report something anonymously through an app that then gets rolled up to the, the brand company that is contracting with the supplier? How does that actually work? Yes, it, it can work in that way. Um, it really depends on the supply chain and the tier of, of, of and, and the type of production and, and the characteristics of the workforce. So there's, I mean, again, if I look at my experience in Bangladesh, many of the apparel um, workers, uh, while most, I mean, Bangladesh from a technology perspective actually has fairly widespread adoption of cell phones, for instance, but smartphones, no, I mean, that's that's kind of out of, out of reach for, you know, the, the workers within the, the garment sector there. So, I mean, worker voice solutions, they've adapted accordingly. Um, you know, maybe they've, they've made it accessible to anyone with a cell phone, you don't need a smartphone. But what I've seen other companies uh, do is they actually visit um, uh, factories, so on on site, and and they then sort of give access to um, uh, maybe an iPad or, or something to that effect, where a worker is given audio instructions, and then then they just need to kind of push a button accordingly. So they sort of do spot checks kind of throughout the factory when when they're visiting them. So all this to say, yes, it's a technology solution, but it always needs to be adapted to you know fit the worker's context. And I'm always cognizant about um, privacy issues, but, you know, we see satellite technology used in more and more places, sometimes really for really interesting scientific research now in terms of, you know, spotting environmental hotspots. I wondered if satellite technology had been used in supply chain at all. It has. And how I've seen it used in, um, you know, the space of modern slavery, for instance, is um, as it relates to brick kilns in India, for instance. So we know that uh, indentured servitude is um, a common characteristic among workers who are working um, in brick kilns in in India. And how um, satellite imagery has been used to identify the location of those brick 
kilns um, to then inform, you know, an, an onward action plan and, and good coverage of, of sort of the different sites around the country. Um, so there is certainly a relationship there and, and you know, ways in which um, uh, the private sector and civil society has been smart with leveraging satellite imagery to get a better understanding of what's actually happening on the ground. So w- one question that, that comes to my mind, um, and, and you talked about it from your own perspective as a conscious consumer, but what actions can individuals do to, to the best of their capabilities and uh, within technology limitations, ensure that the, the products that they're choosing to buy are as slave-free as possible? So they they can you know I'd mentioned kind of the the value that these various apps have have brought to my own life and helping me um, be a bit more informed with my own purchases. Something that I try to practice as well as a consumer, and I mean it, it was kind of interesting when I first started. It's always interesting, but it's it's also to ask questions. I mean, when I'm shopping in person, um, uh, you know, when I, I moved into my condo, for instance, I was looking for an area rug. I know that child labor and and you know forced labor um, it, that is a, a product that you know, is is made, you know, through child labor and, and forced labor in some jurisdictions. And so I was very conscious of that. And, and I remember, you know, going around to the different stores, and that is a question that I would ask. I would ask the sales associate, you know, what assurances or, or what due diligence has your company done to ensure that that's not the case for this particular product? And it's, even though, I mean, in my experience, the sales associate isn't necessarily always equipped to respond to that question. Um, in some cases, they need to bring in a manager other times they just aren't equipped at all. I do like to believe that the more that, you know, it really does get asked, um, that that is how, how change happens. And again, I mean, I, I work for a company myself, right? And so I'm, I'm spearheading Ascent Compliance's own corporate social responsibility initiatives. So the work that we're doing to be responsible and how we operate as a business. And I can certainly tell you that, um, uh, you know, there were a number of drivers that led us to kick, kick off the initiative. Employees, um, it being aligned with employee values is certainly one of them. So um, to speak up, that, that would be my advice to sort of ask these questions um, for people who even work for companies to also talk to their you know leadership members if they don't have an initiative, you know, that's ensuring that they're doing business responsibly to, you know, mention that it's, you know, an, an importance to them. And, and I think that that can go a long way to, to help shift the conversation. So at Miller Center, we work with lots of social enterprises all, all over the world. And, and a number of them have focused on creating supply chains that are, are more than just slave free, but they're actually socially responsible and trying to provide dignified livelihoods for the people who are creating them rather than having them be indentured servants, um, uh, as you talked about a couple times. And, and we've had other ones that have developed technology solutions that make it possible for workers in the garment industry or other industries to, to report using, you know, SMS kind of phones uh, when, when there's human rights abuses. But as things move forward, there, there's this sort of tension that you alluded to when you were talking about Bangladesh and the, the country's need and desire, understandably, for economic development, which is contingent to some extent on this whole fast fashion industry, that you're selling a lot of clothes at at low price. Um, And do you see a shift, uh, a generational shift where people are saying, I'm going to buy fewer things and I'm willing to pay more for them to know that they um, were made by people who were 
treated well in you know rural parts of Mexico, for example, thinking of a social enterprise called Someone Somewhere that came through one of our accelerator programs. How do we? Is there a shift going on, and is there a convergence between what we think of as social enterprises and what all corporations should be doing, which is doing good for the world? Yeah, in terms of kind of changing cor- consumer expectations, I, it, it's it's an interesting point um, that you make, and I think there's a lot of people who um, certainly you know would be willing to pay more for a good, knowing that it's it's been ethically made. Um, there have been studies though that have shown that that people you know what they report um, versus how they actually operate in practice, um, they they aren't always perfectly aligned, right? When it comes to you you know, uh, the various drivers for businesses to to operate responsibly. Um, there, there's a multitude of them and consumer pressures is only one of, of many. And that's, you know, the beauty of, of what laws and regulations can do is they can really level the playing field. So, so you know, all, all businesses are having to meet a certain um, standard. Yeah. So it comes back to this notion of, of um, our companies becoming um, socially responsible to the extent that in, in the long term, there's not really a differentiation between social enterprises and other enterprises, that all enterprises are doing good in the world. Yes, yes. Um, I, I, I would agree with that. Actually, I do think that there is a gradual but important convergence that it's, that's at play. And I do think, again, as I, you know, the legal um, uh, environment has evolved significantly in the past, you know, five, 10 years, and it will continue to do so. And there's some really important um, conversations, for instance, that are taking place in the EU that are looking to make human rights, due diligence, mandatory for businesses. And once businesses, um, once that becomes the business norm, I mean, many businesses are already doing that. I would say they're probably the leaders who are doing that, um, with the exception of, of companies who are operating in France, because it's already the norm there. But outside of France, it's it's kind of the leaders who are, are, are um, uh, undertaking um, human rights due diligence today. But once it becomes legislated, that then raises the bar for all businesses. And I would then argue that at that point, really, there would you know be a close convergence, certainly an important convergence between what we think of social enterprises and, and what we think of businesses today. And maybe the other point that I'll, I'll make, and, and your students might kind of uh, be, be aware of and, and would have seen some headlines around that announcement that was made out of the, you know, uh, uh, Responsible Business Roundtable, um, where, you know, the CEOs of some of the largest companies kind of affirmed that, um, you know, the interests of shareholders aren't the only interests that matter. And in fact, you know, the interests of employees and consumers and the community, suppliers and others matter too. And I found that kind of an important um, announcement for a number of reasons, because I think there's been a misunderstanding, um, a misperception that there is kind of a legal requirement today that businesses need to take shareholder interests as, as you know, the, their, their primary concern. And what that announcement by, by the Responsible Business Roundtable really confirmed for me is, is that it, it isn't, in fact, a, a legislated um, a requirement. It's just a, a norm or a theory that many businesses have been operating a Alongside, and they, you know, have for many years, in fact, have I would say there's few businesses who have only considered the interests of shareholders and how they're doing business. It's more just a matter of to what degree we see that you know corporations are, you know, aware that they have a multitude of interests, and um, again, how, as the drivers are changing, as consumers have and, and others have more visibility into business practices as the laws are changing, their um, real expectations and norms around business, uh, operating responsibly. 
And I think it's also what we'd like to see is a sea change in terms of boards. Um, boards uh, sort of are the ones that hire and fire CEOs. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's another way in which we can get away from this drive towards quarterly earnings as being the penultimate measure of success is if, if the board uh, also is, is um, embracing this idea that shareholder value isn't the ultimate goal, that, that it's, mm-hmm. should be, there should be multifaceted goals. And in fact, having, embracing those goals can really serve for the long-term success and health of a company in a way much more significant than quarterly earnings can. Yeah, it makes me think about the Sustainable Development Goal uh, 12's uh, responsible production and consumption. And I, I keep coming back to, you know, the economic pressure driven, as you're alluding to, um, Don, by quarterly earnings to sell more and more of things and to compete, to have those be lower and lower price, which then leads to this, okay, well, if we want to keep the cost of labor low, one way to do that is is have slaves, right? Right. Because you don't have to pay them a whole lot or they're indentured servants. And so it feels like this whole economic system that's focused on the quarterly earnings and and maximizing profits versus maximizing good is, is something it has to shift in the next 10 years if we're going to you know, have 10,000 victims a day removed from, from modern-day slavery. And I've even noticed it to a modest extent um, people in my sphere of influence saying that they are um, f- sort of taking a fast from buying consumer goods, you know, not buying as many clothes, not uh, trying to buy quality goods, trying to be more responsible about what they're purchasing. So, you know, again, I don't think uh, I've seen a sea change yet, but at least um, some incremental change. Mm-hmm. Well, I certainly would say on both of uh, Don and my behalf, Sarah, that the work that you're doing is uh, really important and hopefully will lead to a dramatic reduction, not just in the proportion, but the, the total number of people uh, who, who are modern day slaves. It's, a, it's a, a terrible crime against humanity and something that I don't think any of us should feel comfortable uh, about. So th- thank you for your leadership. And then uh, thank you for joining us today. It's really a delight uh, hearing about your great work. Thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. And thank Thank you you all for listening to uh, Line of Sight.